Gracious God, as your rain falls upon the earth, giving water and making the earth bud and flourish, may your holy word fall upon our hearts this day and every Lord's day to bring forth an abundant harvest of fruit to your glory. Speak to us now as only you can. Open our hearts to hear your holy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So your sermon text is the Gospel reading, uh, page 10 in the bulletin. From Matthew chapter 9, we read, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, Matthew would have been sitting in a tax booth on the outskirts of the little village of Capernaum. This is on the northwest uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. And just on the outskirts of Capernaum, there was a very important highway, an international highway called the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. And it extended from Mesopotamia, and it came down all the way, it, it, it skirts the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It passes through Capernaum, Tavga, Magdala, and it makes its way on to Egypt. Matthew would have been collecting toll from people passing along the Via Maris. He would also have collected custom duties or tariffs on goods imported from other countries. That's what a tax collector did. You're collecting tariffs and tolls. Now, tax collectors like Matthew were allowed to charge a commission on the taxes that they collected, and that became their pay. And needless to say, they could charge some very large commissions if they so chose. And that made the profession of tax collector among the most despised of all professions in the ancient world. So, verse 9 again, And he, Jesus, said to him, Follow me. Now notice the initiative in the call doesn't come from Matthew. Matthew's not a volunteer. Jesus initiates. He's the one who calls. And he does not call Matthew because Matthew has lived an exemplary life. It's not because Matthew has been well-behaved. We assume otherwise. As a tax collector, he was considered something of a traitor, collaborating with the Roman occupation. So Christ's call to Matthew depends not on any merit in Matthew, but solely on the generosity of Christ. And we read, he rose and followed him. And I'm going to assume that leaving his post involved a financial hardship. He's leaving his work behind. But that doesn't stop Matthew. Verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So this is critical. Meals in the ancient world defined your peer group and your social status. 
There's an ancient saying, it goes like this, to share a meal is to share a life. Meaning that to share a meal was to be accepted into the group with whom you ate. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, notice they didn't say anything to Jesus, I think they would have probably lost uh, the debate, but they go to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now this is classic guilt by association, is it not? But the charge is true. Jesus actually becomes guilty through his association with you and with me. Our sins become his, and his righteousness becomes ours through faith in him. Verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It would be malpractice for a doctor to ignore his patients. It would be spiritual malpractice for Jesus to ignore these tax collectors and these sinners. And then verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, or your translation read a moment ago, steadfast love, same thing, and not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus points the righteous ones, the self-righteous ones, to his word. And Jesus is saying, in effect, mercy is what I want, not merely sacrifice. Jesus is not against sacrifice. He will be the sacrifice for sins. But to forget mercy is to forget what the law is all about. And this concept from Hosea 6.6 read a moment ago is so fundamental to Jesus that he repeats it in Matthew 12, verse 7. It comes up again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's the same as saying, if you're not merciful to your neighbor, all the sacrifices on earth won't help you. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, I did not come to call those who assume they are righteous. I came to call those who know they are not righteous at all. I came to invite those who feel the awful burden, the weight of their own sin. And notice what our Lord is doing. He's not only tolerating sinners in his presence, he is actively pursuing sinners. That's a whole nother ball game. Roman numeral one in your outline, page 11. The healing ministry of Jesus, and, and you can see an example of that in the verses immediately prior to our gospel reading where Jesus is in a house teaching in Capernaum and some men carrying a paralyzed man climb up onto the roof of the house. They destroy the roof. They lower the paralyzed man on a mat down in front of Jesus so he can't ignore the man. He's right in front of him. And what does Jesus say? He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, that's what Jesus came to do, to forgive sin. Well, the Pharisees mutter to one another, this is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so Jesus says, why do you think thus in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. That doesn't require any outward demonstration of proof. 
But then Jesus goes on. He says, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the paralyzed man and he says, get up and walk. And the man does. Now that's the healing ministry of Jesus. And the healing ministry of Jesus, Roman number one, is an illustration. All the healings he did were an illustration of his most important mission, and that is healing lives broken by sin. He heals lives. Years ago, I was uh, doing something foolish. Well, I've done many things foolish uh, years ago, and yesterday as well. Um, but years ago, I, uh, I broke uh, my collarbone, and it was a pretty bad break. It, my right shoulder was caved in, and my collarbone, which normally should be like that, was like that. Okay. And there wasn't anything I could do about it myself. I had to go to someone else, to a bone doctor, who could then take the vertical bone, the bone sticking up, and bring it back down to join it with the rest of the collarbone and to put a couple of temporary pins in there. I had some steel rods sticking out of my shoulder for a few weeks. But I couldn't do that myself. I had to go to someone who could attend to that need. Now, the bone had to be reset by someone else. And I want you to think of humanity in that way. Think of humanity as a body with many members. And Christ is the head, because he is. Each of us is connected to one another in the same way that the parts of a body are connected together. And sin has the potential to break that connection between yourself and others, including yourself and God. Christ has come to reset that connection between yourself and others in the same way that a physician resets a broken bone. Letter A, forgiveness matters because of what it accomplishes, and that is the restoration of relationships, relationships broken by sin. In Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, it's really about the son breaking the relationship he has with his father, and the father is the one who actually resets or repairs the relationship in the same way a doctor resets a broken bone. Letter B, it is often those who are broken, broken physically, emotionally, and relationally who recognize their need for God's help. Jesus said those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. The key word is need. In other words, if you don't perceive your need of Jesus, you have no use for him. What's he doing on the cross if you don't have a need? That's why Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, only those who perceive that they are poor in spirit 
experience any need for the kingdom of heaven that Jesus proclaims. Only those who mourn their sins will seek the comfort of forgiveness in Christ. And let her see. It is the socially and morally flawed, the socially and morally flawed who often humble themselves more readily than religious people do. That's what our lesson is illustrating for us. Why? Because their reputation's already in the tank. What do they have to lose? And Jesus welcomes those who, repu- who have ruined reputations. In fact, he goes out of his way to recruit them. Roman numeral two. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with those most despised, despised by their peers. In Luke 19, Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. Now, Zacchaeus, like Matthew, was a toll collector, a tax collector. And so, by inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house, Christ's reputation took a hit because the crowd began to murmur, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Martin Luther said that next to life itself, your reputation is the most important asset that you have. Jesus repeatedly put his reputation at risk because he would associate with literally anyone. He repeatedly crossed forbidden boundaries. Jesus was not ashamed to be associated with those on the margins of society. And that's why Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, he would be numbered with the transgressors. And that was fulfilled when he was crucified between two criminals. Luther wrote that Christ became for us the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer and robber and desecrator and blasphemer that's ever been anywhere in the world because he took all of our blaspheming, he took all of our robberies and all of our murders upon himself. Letter A, nor is he ashamed to be associated with us and with our failures. Although Christ was himself without sin, St. Paul writes that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus became everything we're guilty of. He became your sin and my sin, and we have become his righteousness as a result. Several weeks ago, my wife and I were touring um, Purdue University campus, and in particular, we were spending time, we were taking on a tour of the veterinary school there at Purdue. And it's one of the top vet schools in the nation. And that means that they are extremely selective in whom they admit to the program there. They want the best students. The best schools are like that, and they can afford to be like that. They can afford to be very choosy. Well, Jesus has his own school. It is a school for anyone who wishes to be a disciple. And point number one, like the best schools, Jesus is very selective about who he calls. He's very selective about that, but not in the way we would expect. The top schools in America select for the smartest, the brightest, the most accomplished persons. 
Jesus is different. Number two, Jesus came to lift the lowly. He came to lift the lowly. And this is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. My friends, Jesus seeks followers who know they are needy. Jesus elevates those who know that they're nothing in the eyes of the world. And that is justice. The world likes to elevate its own. Jesus elevates those whom the world ignores. That is justice. And it is grace. And that is God. That's how he operates. Letter B. The good physician goes where he's needed. He goes where he's needed. And yet he reaches out to those who assume they are well. He doesn't ignore anyone. Notice in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, he sends the Pharisees back to the word of God. Search the scriptures. Learn about the mercy of God, the mercy that he has shown you. Why don't you show it to others as you've received it from him? Go back to the scriptures. He directs them there. He directs all of us there, regardless of where we're at. My friends, there are only two kinds of sinners in the world. There are those whose sins are obvious, like the tax collectors, and there are those whose sins are less obvious, like the Pharisees. We're all in the same boat. Looks can be deceiving. When I hear in the news about a child molester, when I see a picture of a murderer in the front page of the paper, it's easy for me to put on my Pharisee hat and to imagine that there is somehow some great distance between myself and that poor soul. Scripture reminds me that there is not. Scripture reminds all of us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. My friends, you and I are never more full of the Spirit than when we perceive how empty we truly are. We are never closer to Christ when we perceive, than when we perceive how distant we have been from Him. We're never more obedient to the Father when we credit our salvation not to our obedience, but to the perfect obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. In His name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.